Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, January the 17th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today, I was joined by Sinn Féin TD Pader Tobin and politics reporter Sarah Barden and our deputy political editor, Fia Kelly. On the agenda, the ongoing debate about the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, as well as Sinn Féin's leadership transition and a crisis over the resignation of its MP, Barry McElduff. But first, the Eighth Amendment. Sarah, we're embarking on discussions in the Oireachtas of the outcome of the Committee on the Eighth Amendment today. Uh, How's that likely to pan out? Um, I think it'll be quite an interesting debate. It's about five hours scheduled for today. It's also in the Senate, uh, Shannon, sorry, today. And um, I think we'll get a good indication as to where a lot of the TDs stand. As we know, the committee um, made its recommendations on December 20th. It proposes that the Eighth Amendment be repealed from the Constitution and the Oireachtas be given the power to legislate up to 12 weeks. Um, And we really haven't been given, I suppose, a clear indication by a large number of TDs and senators as to how they will vote um, or if they're in favour of the Oireachtas Committee recommendations. Indeed, the Taoiseach Leo Vragor or the uh, leader of the opposition, Micheál Martin, have failed to to give their viewpoints Are we on this matter. likely to get that this week? Uh, no. Um, the Taoiseach has said he will not uh, make any public statement as to the level of his support either way until the Cabinet make a firm decision on whether or not they accept the Committee's recommendations and that won't happen until the last week in January or maybe the first week in February. Um, the Fianna Fáil leader last, yes, like early in the week said he'd make his position known in a couple of days but he's not speaking in the doll so I'm not really sure when exactly we'll hear from them but uh, I would say you will see the kind of main protagonists on both sides so the people who participated in the Oireachtas Committee and indeed those who I suppose are opposed to the Oireachtas Committee recommendations I'd say for the, fir- for the first day of debate that's ex- that's where we will see the majority of uh, time being occupied But in a way the most interest isn't it is in and we're running this tracker poll now of all, all the members of the Oireachtas and where they stand and really the ones I find most interesting are the ones who don't have a view or won't express a view? There's a lot of people who are reluctant to express any view whatsoever um, until I suppose they have to and despite the pressure from you know, media organisations to declare a view. Um, they are reluctant to express any view whatsoever. I mean, I cited Heather Humphreys, the Minister for Jobs, um, last week did an interview on her local radio station who said that she neither agreed or disagreed with the procedure, so I think, or with the proposal. So I think that's exactly what we're going to see. You'll have people who are very much in favour of repeal and very much against who will occupy the dull debate. And I think when we get to a position later um, in March, when there will be a bit, there will be a bill before the House on the referendum that people's viewpoints will now, become a lot clearer. Now, last question on this before I, before I broaden it out a little bit. Yeah. People kind of pour scorn, or some people do anyway, on something like the, the Humphrey statement you referred to. Yeah. But isn't it the reality that politicians, many politicians, for a variety of reasons, find this very difficult to actually come down on one side or the other? And I wonder, does that mean that they're not going to get involved at all when it finally does come to the crunch of an actual campaign? Look, I think there's two elements to this. There's a little bit of cowardly behaviour going on where politicians are reluctant to express their viewpoint because 
you know, the fear for electoral consequences. Um, I do think, you know, that this being the issue that it is that we shouldn't, I suppose, be forcing people to, you know, come out so early in in uh, in favour or against. But at the same time, you know, politicians are elected to lead. And this is, as Pada referred to it this morning on Newstalk, it's a debate of a generation. And I do think the politicians, whether they're opposed to it or in favour of it, should you know, have to lead by example. But already the scene has been set for politicians when the referendum takes place for politicians to take a backseat role or they would like to take a backseat role. Um, Leo Varadkar keeps referring to how this should be a debate led by civic society. In an interview in the Irish Times before Christmas with Fiek, Micheál Martin said very similar. So you have the two leaders of the two main opposition parties who are, you know, are kind of wanting to take a very much backseat role in this referendum campaign. I don't know if that's going to be feasible when it actually comes down yeah, it to it. It's interesting. Right? Sarah was talking about Heather Humphrey. Sarah, I think when she, I think it was Thursday or Friday, she gave that interview to her local radio station, and I just bumped into somebody senior Fine Gael figure that evening, and we were chatting, and I said, "So did you see what Heather Humphrey said?" You know, and this person said, "I don't think she's going to get away with that for the duration of the campaign. This one, so this would be someone who would know." And this person indicated, "Look, when it comes to the crunch, she will be." okay in their words she will fall in with what the current position is but I think this person was very much of the view that no matter as Sarah says that politicians may want to hold back from it as long as Mm. they can they won't realistically get away for it for the duration of the entire campaign there will come a time when almost everybody will have to say well my view is this and I think it's just a matter of all those people judging when the appropriate time is and I think one thing that's been kind of from a political management point of view impressive about how the government have managed this so far. It's almost that they've mainstreamed the idea of 12 weeks without restriction, which was until six months ago, almost, you know, nobody... Had, radical. Radical. And like we had before the committee said it, then we had a succession of ministers saying it, and now we clearly have what looks like the Taoiseach managing his own position that he... Look, it looks like he's going to say, I agree with this, but he's kind of going inch by inch by inch by inch. And it seems to be a way of bringing the public with them. I think it's quite now, interesting the, the way they've managed to do that. Now, Patrick, you do have a view. Yeah, I suppose, first of all, it's important for me to say that Sinn Féin's policy is to repeal the 8th, and they will be campaigning strongly to repeal the 8th. And uh, they look to legislate on the issue uh, with regards to life-limiting conditions uh, in the whole area of uh, rape and incest and where there's a threat to the health uh, of the mother. And um, so I obviously have a different opinion, so it's important to say I'm only speaking on behalf of myself in this context. Um, My view is that, um, you know, that we, we need to create a, a society where every single living human being uh, is valued and that uh, an unborn child is an individual living human being. And when we discuss any, legisla- any legislation that seeks to change their right to life, we have to take it really, really, really serious as a society because for that individual, um, there's, there's no recovery, obviously, at all for, from abortion uh, for them. Um, I have difficulties around the issue of abortion when it comes to how minority groups um, fare uh, in countries where abortion is legal. So, for example, in countries like Denmark, where uh, 98% of children who are diagnosed uh, with Down syndrome in the womb uh, don't make it to term because uh, of abortion. And in countries like Iceland, where that figure is nearly 100%. And those children who are actually born in Iceland with Down syndrome now are more than likely to have beaten the screening test rather than have been, you know... Uh, now, I'm not suggesting for a second that a society seeks to uh, purposefully uh, select out these uh, these type of people. I, I just think what happens is a society is created where um, people 
make individual decisions that leads to a, a national trend. And indeed, the, the Minister for Health in, Denmark, in, in the Netherlands was asked, if the personal choice to have an abortion leads to a country where there are no children with Down syndrome, um, is that okay? And she said that's something we have to live with. Do you make a distinction between the proposal uh, to repeal the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution and the legislation, including the 12-week provision, which Vic Well, I, I'll be honest. I, I think that we need to have a society where everybody's protected, every single living human being is protected. So um, you're in favour of retaining the Eighth Amendment? I'm in favour of retaining the Eighth, and I hope to uh, to vote that way uh, at the ballot box. Um, with regards to the, the 12-week uh, provision, um, it just shows you how fluid this issue is. Because once you start to talk about uh, the issue of abortion, the ground shifts very, very quickly. So where a lot of people came onto this ground with real concerns around really difficult and tragic cases that people were faced around life-limiting conditions, rape and incest, etc. As you've said there, Fiat, within six months, the ground has radically shifted to probably a proposal which is less regulated than it is in Britain currently at the moment. Now, if you said a year ago to any of us that this would be the topic uh, for, for, the, for the debate uh, nobody would have really believed that, that would be the topic. Now, if you delete the right to life uh, amendment uh, for these unborn children, um, whatever legislation is created or promised in advance of the referendum is only indicative. And we will be in a fluid situation post because people like Ruth Coppinger are not going to stop at 12 weeks. Uh, they're going to want for more and there will be ca- strong campaigning to deregulate abortion laws in this country uh, until they don't exist. Now, the two other main parties in this country are allowing a free vote among Oireachtas members on this on this issue. What, what's Sinn Féin's position? I mean, you, I mean, you've lost the party whip before because of your views on these issues. Yeah, well, I suppose I have. I have had an agreement uh, with the leadership of the party, uh, which basically allows for me to articulate uh, my views as long as I clearly differentiate those and, uh, from the party's views and state the party's views because it would be wrong for me to confuse listeners uh, to where the party stands. And the party strongly and energetically, and in, in fairness to the Sinn Féin, it will be the only significant political party which will be campaigning on this issue uh, with regards to repeal. Um, so, you know, I my attitude is a very difficult space. I You know, there's people, there's hardly a, a household or a family in the country where everybody's exactly on the same page on this particular issue. There's a need for, while there's a whip on this issue, and I respect that, there is a need for some level of flexibility too for people to be able to simply participate in the debate. Like, it shouldn't be the case where we go through one of the biggest human rights debates from either side of the debate, uh, probably in, in 50 years, a piece of legislation that will change the landscape for 50 years, which will affect hundreds of thousands of people from either side of the debate, uh, that every citizen should be able to participate in that debate. Uh, so, so we, sorry, we, we, we anticipate, you know, that there will be a, a range of views within Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and perhaps within the Labour Party and other smaller parties too. Um, uh, will there be, a, is there a range of views, similar range of views within the Sinn Féin parliamentary party to your knowledge? Um, well, Sinn Féin are a very tricky position, um, not least because of, I suppose, Patter's predicament, but... Um, they also are in a predicament in that uh, the Oireachtas Committee's report goes beyond what their party position is. Um, now, the leader in waiting, I suppose, Mary Lou MacDonald, has indicated that there would be another Ardesh prior to the referendum to change their party position. So at the Ardesh late last year, it was agreed uh, that the party's policy north and south would be that uh, terminations should be provided in the cases of rape, incest, uh, fatal fetal abnormalities and when there's a threat to the mental health or the health 
uh, of a mother. Um, that is not in line with what, what the Oireachtas Committee has proposed. So they will have to go back to an Ardesh and try to sell uh, the 12 week to their party, uh, party's Ardesh. Now that will be a very difficult sell for Sinn Féin, not, not least uh, from their members in the North. Um, so it's, it, you know, it will, be ve- it will be very difficult for them. Now, Potter wasn't the only person. He did seek a um, freedom of conscience vote at the Ardesh uh, last year. He wasn't the only one who sought it, but the, Mary Lou MacDonald was very clear that there had to be a party policy on that and he's right in that they would be the main party proposing repeal in the referendum campaign. But if I can just go back to something that he said which I think is going to be used quite a lot in this debate and and, and I don't think that it's, it's fair to use it in this debate. The first thing I suppose he said was that um, the, about, about the issue of Down syndrome um, the Oireachtas Committee made a very deliberate recommendation that terminations um, on the basis of what is a fetal abnormality like Down syndrome, that terminations should not be granted on that basis. Um, and with regards, I suppose, to why they reached the 12 weeks, like the Oireachtas Committee uh, heard quite clearly that you can't legislate for rape and incest. That if you do that, you know, in the cases of rape, you may have to go through a criminal Procedure. Mm, we've we've talked through this was, in previous podcasts, yeah. and it, it just it, that, that well, I became think, very I think clear. Sarah's right. Like that, that, it was clear that 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 rejecting the non-fatal abnormality as a grounds for termination by the committee was a clear yeah. attempt to the boxes. I just want to get Sarah to finish her point here because I think the point is that in relation to Down syndrome and the twelve weeks, there is a there is a question about whether it would be possible to diagnose Down syndrome within that time frame. There because is, the, the, the counter-argument to what you've just said is that, well, you know, nobody has to give any reason at all under the legislation as proposed. So, But but as I understand it medically, it, um, it would not be... Uh, it, it, would, it would be difficult. It would to, be very difficult. So to normally these, uh, to identify what is medically referred to as a fetal abnormality, but are, you know, life debilitating disabilities like Down syndrome, that is normally not identified until your 20-week scan. And the Oireachtas Committee is very clear, and if the government accepts it, that um, a disability or a fetal abnormality is not a sufficient reason for a termination. Now, there is a test that can be done in your ninth to 10th week of pregnancy that can identify abnormalities. It's very rare that it's used in Ireland, it's very expensive for one thing. It takes two weeks for the results to come back. So let's say you had it in your ninth or tenth week, you would only get the results in the eleventh or twelfth week, mm. by which um, time you know would be running out as to whether or not you can have a yeah, termination. Just, 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 just. I suppose the question that would be asked of people will be whether to delete the eighth or not. So any motion by a, an Oireachtas committee, or even any indicative legislation, does not offer any guarantee to anybody what the legislation would look like in August or September or October because obviously there's a free whip for that as well so no or indeed three or five years later exactly. because you're making a thin end of the wedge there's argument the, as well, well there's a fluidity to this in the in the space of six months as, we, as have we've all agreed that the, the ground has shifted radically in that period of time now in, in countries like Britain there's um, obviously there's thing called sex uh, selection abortion and unfortunately for some communities um Female unborn children are not valued uh, for economically or cultural purposes. Uh, and, uh, you know, many of those families tend not to go ahead with uh, bringing the female unborn child to term. So it's estimated that there are millions of missing uh, females uh, around the world on the basis of either infanticide or 
abortion. Now, while it, it would be illegal in many countries, like India, to uh, have an abortion on the basis of uh, the, the gender of the child, it's virtually impossible to make it illegal because once you give the information to the, the family, this is the gender of the child, the family doesn't necessarily have to come back and say, well, I'm having an abortion on this particular purpose. Once abortion is available, especially where you delete restrictions, so where you have an on-request or on-demand situation, the decision on the criteria for that uh, abortion is free of government's influence. It's in the individual's hand only. Um, and I, I still think we need to come to a country that actually values every single human life. That, you know, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be, you know, um, fit our picture of, of what is ability or not uh, to have a right to have a, 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 a stakeholder in this country. Clearly very serious, sincerely held, held, held views on that. But is is the counter-argument or one of the counter-arguments not the fact that thousands of women are already availing of these procedures? They just don't have them available to them to in, to, to in Ireland. They're commonly accepted uh, medical procedures through, throughout the Western world. And thousands of women have been travelling for, for generations now for, 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 for many reasons. And each one of those is an absolute tragedy for the mother and for the child, in, in my view. But Ireland has... Not an abor- necessarily in the view of the, of the woman. No, in, in my view, I said. Mm. But it, 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 in Ireland, there's an abortion rate currently of about 5%. 5% of pregnancies are terminated currently uh, that originate in Ireland. Um, in Britain, it's about 20%. In a country, for example, like Spain, which would have had a similar law to us and a similar culture, one in five pregnancies are terminated rather than one in 20, which is the case in Ireland. So there's no doubt when you change the law, first of all, access is far more readily available. And I know families, I have friends who have come across crisis situations in their lives uh, who said to me they would have chosen uh, to have an abortion, only the difficulty it was going over to Britain, and they didn't. And now their child is, is with them. And um, it, in, in each of those situations, it can make the difference between you know life or death for that child. And I think that's important. And, you know, law changes culture too. You know, once you change a law, uh, it culture changes as well. It's very unlikely uh, that you're going to have Ireland as that outlier at, at a 5% abortion rate if you change the law, especially so radically. These as are the sort of issues that we're going to hear a lot about over the next few months, Sarah. Yeah, and I think, you know, that argument, I suppose, will be used... Uh, that Patter has has referenced there that I suppose when when law changes culture changes but I mean we heard that exact same argument during the Protection of Life During Pregnancy uh, Act in 2013 that the floodgates would so suddenly open to suicidal women and 26 you know the the reports from the hospitals and the Department of Health would say that the 26 women have sought terminations under the Protection of Life because Aon O'Riordan said that law was the start and here we are if, he if the well, he he was recorded uh, by the Irish or the Sunday Independent in saying because he was getting grief from uh, an interviewer that he wasn't going far enough, and he said, "Listen, this is the first step." And isn't it indicative that we're actually having a conversation just three or four years after that with regards not unrestricted abortion? Is my point not proven by that? Fact? Just a lot. Yeah, 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 I, 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 I think the, the, I think I know that the committee quite clearly just to go back to that disability issue tried quite clearly tried to box that off, and that that has been removed from the table. But that's not going to stop it being a major issue in the campaign. I think it's going to be one of the emotive issues. Patters raise it. Jim O'Callaghan said he had concerns around it last week. He gave an interview William Binchy in a column in our paper not last Saturday, Saturday before raise it. I think that is going to be one of the most potent issues in the campaign. Even despite the fact that there is debate over whether, you know, the committee's recommendations kind of box it off or not. I think if you look at referendums, if an issue is being debated, 
in such minute detail. What matters is that it's being debated, not whether the, the why's and wherefores of it. So if you look at the Brexit referendum, I was kind of intrigued this morning to read in a different newspaper that um, the kind of pr- uh, people who are in favour of, re- of retaining the aid are kind of contracting a few people who are involved in that campaign. The issue of the 350 million, right, it wasn't, that was widely disputed. But if, if you read people who were involved in the campaign said they didn't matter if it's true or not. The fact that it was being debated was all that mattered, that people were hearing this. So if we have people arguing over whether disability is not an issue or not in this re- in this regime, the fact that it's being debated is going to puncture truth people. And it's almost like the reverse of the same-sex marriage referendum where, you know, everybody knew somebody who was gay. Now people are going to be saying, well, everybody knows somebody or knows a family who have a Down syndrome member. And that is going to be a big issue, I think, in the campaign. It's going to be a huge challenge for the advocates of uh, repeal and, you know, the 12-week uh, position to really challenge that. And, and I think that's going to be, be guaranteed that we're going to ventilate and explore these issues in some detail over, over the next few months. I want to move on, though, to it's been a, it's a not been a great week for Sinn Féin, Pat, or has it? Uh, uh, Pat Leahy, our political editor, has a piece in this morning's Irish Times where he suggests that, I, I, I'm kind of interpreting what he's saying, that this is part of the growing up process, that the experience you've had with Barry McElduff where you tried to hold the line, you tried to do the regular Sinn Féin, not an inch position, but you ended up having to do what other political parties have done in the past and fold under public pressure. Well, first of all, to a certain extent, you're right in that uh, Sinn Féin is probably the fastest growing political organisation uh, in the country. There's thousands of people annually adding to our membership. Uh, and as as such, when you grow, you have growing pains because you have to... They don't include someone putting a loaf of bread in their head in the supermarket. No, and then... no they don't. And, you know, you know, like we've said that his lack of awareness on that was shockingly poor and it was wrong. Um, and that, you know, the, the action of King's Mill was immoral. It was sectarian. It was uh, disgusting. It was one of the most shocking atrocities of... Um, the troubles, and it was carried out by soft-styled Republicans. And you know, I, I I personally don't know who carried it out, but I, I imagine you're right. Um, and um, I think anybody who is a MP or an elected representative of that level in the north of Ireland um, should be able to associate those two words uh, in that environment and have enough sense uh, to not uh, carry that out now. Barry has, has stated that it was there was no intention of it. I think it's important I think to, we've to kind state of, that. Yeah, okay, well, you know? we've stated that. I think we've yeah. moved on from that and, and, okay. and, and he's resigned. Isn't there the broader question, though, Fiak, is the fact that um, uh, we were at the, uh, the Sinn Féin Ardesh uh, a few months ago. Uh, it was very prominent and important, clearly, to the members there that the, the, the track record of the late Martin McGuinness in the IRA, the actions of Martin Ferris, that the crowd was heaving and mm-hmm. cheering on behalf of a version of what happened in this country over the last 50 years or so and, and, and what happened in the Troubles. And the Sinn Féin's narrative of what happened in the Troubles, of the legitimacy of the Republican armed struggle, is, not, is still not shared by the majority of people in these islands and squalid and as as Pater has said immoral acts of sectarian murder formed part of that Republican struggle. Yeah and I think the, 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 the interesting thing is that because the, the, the narrative is being show, so shaped that you know this was about you know, civil rights and etc etc although civil rights were a huge element of it but they weren't you know sometimes I think it's clouded what actually happened and I think the fact that younger voters in the Republic who are steering towards Sinn Féin don't really remember what happened. And on occasions, they are confronted actually with incidents of this awful violence, the state papers being 
an episode every year when people are reminded actually what happened and then something like what Barry McElduff did brings back to people or people might not even have known what, what the Kingsman mass- Massacre was and now it comes back so I think it's they're trying to kind of drift away from and glorify what actually happened and on occasions like this the most absolutely and probably incredible interpretation that it was kind of you know cack-handed humour I don't think that really holds water brings this back to people that this is actually what happened but the management of it was the interesting thing I think that's what Pat was getting at this morning that when you heard Mary Lou MacDonald last week on the news at one she wasn't defending the action I think and I think Sinn Féin's folks over the weekend weren't defending the action they were defending the defence to the action if you know what I mean they were defending this is proportion that we've suspended for three months but the fact that you kind of thought that this is the normal Sinn Féin pattern dig in weather it out and then I was actually hugely surprised the Monday morning when I saw that Barry McAuliffe had resigned. I thought it was a step change for the party. Hmm. And you just you think it's significant too? I think it's significant because, hmm. look, I know Patter's going to say Barry came up to his own viewpoint and he probably maybe he did like decide himself that he was going to step down. But speaking to people in the party on yesterday or the day before, they were saying, look, he... He doesn't, he's not, if that, if that is the case, he's not deaf. He would have heard that people were publicly distanced himself for, from him and that they were kind of backing away from him. And I think it's interesting. It's, to me, probably the first incident I can remember of Sinn Féin reacting to public opinion in the way that another party would. And I know people in Sinn Féin are, they're, 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 they object to the fact that we kind of say they're transitioning to a new party. I saw Ono Brin take to Twitter last night and have a go with us on our editorial, but that is actually what's happening. And that's the most interesting thing I felt of the last few days. Can I just, like, every, every couple of months or every year, an issue, a, a real issue of legacy arises for some accidental or, or, or uh, particular reason. And that's how we as a nation are dealing with legacy issues. And in fairness to Martin McGuinness, and most people would respect Martin McGuinness's bona fides in trying to reach out on legacy issues and try to fix them, Martin was obviously of the view that, no, we should actually do this in a structured fashion. It shouldn't be just a haphazard mistake that uh, arises every now and again. And in the negotiations in the North at the moment, Sinn Féin have put legacy issues front and centre of that issue. We're actually on the same page as all the other political parties have the DUP, and we're on the same page as the government, that legacy issues needs to be resolved. In other, in other words, that anybody who has suffered as a result should be able to find either justice or at least information on what has happened. The only people who are stopping that structured manner in dealing with legacy issues are the British at the moment. They won't sign up to it. And, you know, I, I think, you know, we, 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 we will be back we're here. About the, we're talking about a specific instance of you, as you've called it, stupidity and how the party do not accept that, you know, this is rare for as you said, legacy issues come up again and again and again. We've never had somebody resign or step aside like this or be disciplined by the party on foot of a legacy issue. Well, I, I would say the party is quite, quite like, oh, you're right, on the legacy issue, that hasn't happened before. But the party is quite strict on discipline. That, mm. like, For example, Dahi McKay in, in the north uh, of Ireland was the chair of the finance committee there. And for a misdemeanor, he resigned and, and there was there was no prevaricating it was done and dusted end of story and, and it, that's how it, sh- it, it should happen but what I'm, I'm, I'm simply saying to you is we either deal with it in this haphazard ad hoc fashion for generation or we actually sit down create an infrastructure where people can tell their truths no matter what side they're on and the difficulty I haven't had in this and this is not water by three but there, there are two com- communities who have suffered radically uh, over the last summer while and because polit- Sinn Féin is a political uh, operator, if you like, north and south, it tends to become about Sinn Féin republicanism, 
rather than about what happens. Uh, now, for example, the O'Dowds uh, next door to, 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 to me, they lost their brothers, two brothers, uh, in, in an attack by uh, the Glenan gang, which was uh, supported by the British Army. Their uncle had bullets uh, put through his chest. Now, I have asked Enda Kenny and Leo Radker to sit down with the O'Dowd family uh, and they refused. So for, for, I, for I five think, years I think now, that while that's they have refused to sit that's down with the O'Dowd. Me, but on the, on, on the other hand, there, there is a fundamental difference there, Sarah, which is that nobody associated with the O'Dowd killers is asking me to vote for them at the next general election. And that is quite a profound difference. And Pat, Pat makes the point in his piece that people say these things happen, they blow up, as, as Patter said, perhaps an unfortunate point of phrase, from time to time. And um, and and then then they kind of, they're forgotten and they don't actually seem to have a long-term effect mm-hmm. in the polls. But the reality is he argues that they are a contributory factor to the fact that Sinn Féin, despite what Patter said earlier about being the fastest growing party in Ireland, its growth has been, he describes it as solid rather than spectacular, that there seemed to be a ceiling on it. And the ceiling is seen to be because of those kind of issues. But aren't we now at this key point, change of leadership, generational shift, where maybe maybe we're going to start seeing a change? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to go back to Patter, what Patter said very quickly, um, he's trying to conflate two issues. There are legitimate legacy issues that need to be dealt with. What Barry McElduff did was completely different. He was stupid, he was crass, and he taunted the people on a very key date. With regards to, I suppose, Sinn Féin's growth, from every opinion poll we've seen, they are kind of stalling at the, you know, at this point. And everyone believes or expects that when there's a change of leadership that perhaps the party will continue to grow. But what we've seen, I suppose, over the past uh, number of weeks with the handling of this controversy is that it's very much, you know, same old, same old. And whilst... Barry McElduff, I suppose, resigned and kind of gave Sinn Féin a break. Had he had he not have done that, uh, the party was satisfied with its three months suspension from the par- from the party, and people like Patter and Mary Lou Wright uh, defending that over the course of the weekend. Look, I think you know Mary Lou gives uh, when she if she is elected. Um, uh, leader, she gives them an opportunity for, I suppose, a different type of Sinn Féin. However, you know, throughout the past number of years, she's very much defended uh, the worst atrocities of the IRA in the same way that uh, Jerry Adams has. And so she's very, you know, in, in the in the controversies that have continued to engulf Sinn Féin and, and Jerry Adams, Mary Lou has stood you know, very loyally by Gerry Adams' side. So those con- same issues will continue to to plague. No, she doubt. has no choice really. Like she she has to because, it, like like you say, like the party is not going to disown what it stands for overnight, and she has to be elected as leader. And she represents, as we saw at the Ardesh, people who are proud of what happened over the last thirty years. As you say, you know, proud member of the IRA. We all remember that quote. They, they don't try to be proud of Kings Mills, though. The, no, no, but but she she but I think. She's not going to change what Pat mentions in his piece this morning, which is Mary Lou, I, d- I don't think, is going to suddenly take over and they're going to go up by 15% mm-hmm. in the polls or 10 seats in the next general election or 15 seats. I think it's going to be an incremental thing. I think you have, what, 23 seats now? 23. So if they got, they inched a bit further north towards 30, mm. I'm talking mid-20s, late 20s, 26, 27, they would be doing well. It's very much a long-term project. I think... It's 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 always interesting to me how we get damned for our slow and steady growth. You know what I mean? I remember being on the. We're not damning it. We're just no, but that, it's that, just that, as if slow and steady is a negative thing. That growth is a negative thing. Like I remember being on the uh, RTE panel for after the election, and we were getting slated for just going from fourteen to twenty three, while 
the social the social democrats were, were wonderful for holding their three seats and not increasing whatsoever um, i think you know what what has happened over the last number of years is clear we had a two party state that had 80% of the vote in this country and then there was another half party uh, the labor party and that was the political configuration mm. for generations and under the leadership of jerry adams what we've seen is it's quite startling that that has completely radically changed uh, and you know most people would say that uh, you know uh, uh, many of the, the best operators currently in Leinster House and on the ground in constituencies are Sinn Féin activists and Sinn Féin TDs. And I've no doubt that the level of work that they do and they, the, the, the commitment that they bring to their, the, to their policies uh, will actually see further growth in the future. And also people just, you know, people, a lot of people understand the context of what happened in the North for a start, but they also under, understand that Sinn Féin was to the force since about 1987 in bringing about the most successful peace process that the planet has ever seen. So, yeah, while there are difficulties, uh, you know, with regards to troubles that, mm. that nobody's proud of and people are ashamed of, mm. in, in fact, people are damn proud as well that Jerry Adams, along with others like uh, John Hume and uh, Albert Reynolds, etc., bought about one of the most successful uh, peace, proce- peace processes in the world. And that's a legacy well, that can't well, actually... We're going to have to wrap it up pretty soon. I'm going to use the privilege of the chair, which I hold. Uh, I rarely do this, but um, in my in my day job, um, I cover arts and culture for the Irish Times. And we have a story on the front of the Irish Times today, Padder, and I know that you're the Sinn Féin spokesperson on culture as well as being chair of the relevant Oireachtas Committee as well. Uh, it relates to issues of bullying and harassment, which are a huge, huge story in the arts at the moment, and particularly in Ireland in relation to Michael Colgan's tenure at the Gate Theatre. There is an inquiry going on there at the moment. Um, a, a large number of women, very prominent women working in Irish theatre have said they don't have faith in that inquiry. You're going to be discussing corporate governance in the arts later this afternoon. What's your position on it? Yeah, um, there is a major problem. It's not just in the arts with regards uh, bullying and sexual harassment. And <clears throat> Indeed, I've been working on the case in the National Museum of Ireland for a long period of time and that's just absolutely shocking what's happened there. I believe there's a reluctance uh, from Fischl Ireland to get involved and, and, and to fix the issue. For me, there's a number of ways it can be fixed. We need to improve corporate governance uh, so that when organisations uh, such as the Arts Council are involved in funding um, organisations such as the Gate, for example, that they would be able to withhold funds from those organisations. If those organisations are adjudged by a, a third party like the work, Workplace uh, Commission... Um, Is there anything preventing the Arts Council from doing that now? Right now, the, the Arts Council have never done that. Now, uh, I've, I put questions to the Minister and the Arts Council, and so far I've got different views on the uh, on the issue. I also believe that there ha- there has to be an, an actual, a really serious forum set up by the government to focus all uh, participants into fixing this issue because one of the key drivers of this is, one, the precarious nature of the workers within the uh, sector. Most of those workers are only working on a particular project and then their, their term finishes. And for a person to raise a flag in that type of scenario is really difficult because they get blacklisted and, and don't get uh, further work. And then is the large level of power that's concentrated in the hands just of a few. So equalising that power balance, giving, making sure that those workers actually enjoy the full rights uh, of employee legislation. And I think it should be broadened out to the, Although, fil- the know, film pe- industry too. People who work in the arts also do say that you know it is by its nature somewhat precarious. You know, it is project-based. You is. do need some freedom to hire the people who have the, the requisite kinds of talents or the right people to fill a role. I'm not suggesting party. a straitjacket, for, for for example, but it just in, in, in the film industry, for, uh, you would have a particular show that would happen over a number of different series. Each series is actually set up in an individual special purpose vehicle, uh, which employs all of those individuals 
for just that. So they go on to series two and all those individuals have to reapply for their jobs. And I know that that leads to a situation where uh, they don't get reemployed if they stand up for their rights. Secondly, within uh, Section 481 and the tax breaks, those firms are, um, they have to employ between, uh, I think it's two and ten um, trainees. In those trainee positions, there's no start, middle or end. There's no qualification. There's no any criteria to it. And I believe they're, they're, they're yellow pack jobs uh, and people are forced into positions of becoming trainees on different projects over and over and over again. And I think most actual participants in the industry would accept that they are problems within it. I believe until now we've had a minister who has been had a really hands-off approach to this. Uh, and unless... And I'm given the, the new minister, uh, uh, Josefa Madigan, the benefit of the doubt, but she needs to take on a, a hands-on role and lead from the front uh, and make sure that there's no space for this, that every worker in Ireland has the right to go in to a working environment where they're respected and where they can deliver their best. Patrick, thanks very much. Thanks also to Sarah and Fiak for coming in today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider may be. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are very welcome always. And you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. 